0: Welcome to the latest episode of the London Writing Guy podcast. In this episode, I speak to Samaya Mughal. Samaya is a senior BBC journalist, presenter, and the brown girl behind the award-winning podcast series Brown Girl Can't Swim. Did you know that 68% of South Asians are unable to swim? And by that, the definition is being able to swim 25 metres or more unaided. What's even more astonishing is that 76% of South Asian females identify as not being able to swim. These figures have come about as a result of Swim England's four-week nationwide survey which aimed to discover the barriers preventing ethnically diverse communities from accessing water-based activities. Sameya Mughal's award-winning podcast series, Brown Girl Can't Swim, which is available now on BBC Sounds, was one of the catalysts for this research to be undertaken. I speak to Samaya about how the podcast came together and where the idea for it came from, how she got into journalism, which meant that she rejected a job at one of the biggest accounting firms in the UK, and many other things. As ever, if you do enjoy this podcast, please make sure you subscribe to the London Writing Guide podcast to make it easier to download future episodes. Please go back and listen to previous episodes if they do take your fancy. Uh, make sure you're following London Writing Guy on Instagram at London Writing Guy. But for now, I leave you with the conversation I had with Samaya Mogul about her podcast, Brown Gal Can't Swim. I mean I came across you when you um did your podcast and you I think you were on BBC Breakfast just talking about it and that's kind of um, where where I kind of just dis- <laughs> so Yeah uh so that's where I uh, discovered you and, and I kind of I think I may have come across your name before because I'm a I'm a cricket fan so I think I may have come across your name when when, when with regards to the hundred yeah. uh, and stuff like that um but um yeah I I kind of took notice about about the story because and I think this is fascinating because it it's almost something that me my friends my family talk about almost as a joke and almost as like a badge of honor sometimes it's like oh yeah i can't swim either uh, and it was just so perfect because i i heard your story and i was like this is this is exactly what sometimes we we talk about at the dinner table or, or whatever and and you you went and kind of did a podcast about it and won an award for it and it was all it was amazing um but i want to start kind of I mean, this podcast probably would never have come about if you weren't a journalist. And so I would love to know a little bit more about your path into that. Um, because I know you studied international relations. So I just I'm fascinated by wondering how you went from studying international relations, to potentially becoming an accountant yeah. and a journalist. So tell me a little bit more about that, if you will.
1: Well, you're very well researched, so well done you. Obviously, That's it.
0: That's all the, that's all the research I have.
1: Exactly. Well, no, no, it's good. It's so funny, isn't it? Because we call journalists journalists, but really they're just like stalkers. Uh, That's basically what I am. I'm just there like stalking everybody's history so I can ask them questions and not feel ignorant. Um, So it was a bit mad. I won a competition. So Mm -hmm. I'm from Nottingham. My backstory is I trained at an amazing drama group called the television workshop, like BAFTA award-winning. Loads of very famous people have come out of um, the, the workshop, Bella Ramsey, Vicky McClure, Jack O'Connell, Samantha Morton. And actually, I always wanted to act. So I either wanted to act or be a journalist as a kid. These were the two things I was always passionate about. But at the time that I was training at the workshop, the industry, and still is to a certain extent was quite stereotypical in, ty- in, in terms of the types of roles that I would audition for. So I auditioned for Slumdog Millionaire, that was slightly less stereotypical, but other than that, um, yeah. they tended just to be parts that was something to do with you know, an arranged marriage or it was very much to do with my culture, my heritage. Um, and I, I guess the other thing was, it was also down to your look as well. So it was, if you were lucky enough to get an audition and you were good at what you did, It wasn't guaranteed you were going to get the part. It also depended on whether you looked like that person's daughter or brother or sister or whatever, which is changing now, um, but was certainly the case at the time. I'm a bit of a dork. So I was like, you know what? This industry is way too uncertain. Let me go to uni, um, get a degree, and also culturally, culturally, there were definitely members of my family that would not have approved of me going around and becoming an actress, you know, Like could not think of anything worse, you know. Journalism was slightly more respectable, but acting was just like absolute no-no. And even though it was difficult at the time to accept, I am grateful for the prioritization of my education because I think it's made me the journalist that I am today. I wouldn't have said that at the time, but anyway. So um, I went to uni. I did international relations and politics. I minored in economics. I loved doing economics. I studied in Germany and Hong Kong. And while I was at university, I just did loads of different things to see if there was anything I enjoyed as much as acting. Um, Hence why I was running the Investment Finance Society. I did multiple internships with HSBC. I was working with Deloitte. And when I graduated, I had an offer from Deloitte, um, HSBC, and, and another accountancy firm in the city in London. And I was just like, I don't enjoy this as much as acting, right? Or presenting. I've got my degree. My degree was my backup plan. I don't need to go to Deloitte and do my ACA and become a chartered accountant after another three years. So I moved back to Nottingham, my home. I was working in a retail shirt shop, finding it really hard because I was like, you have a degree and you're basically doing the same job that you could do when you were 16 years old. And then my acting agent at the television workshop told me about an audition, an open audition that was happening the next morning for BBC Radio Nottingham. And I was like, why the hell would I go to that? I don't listen to local radio. I've never been to a radio studio in my life. The only time I'd ever done radio was over the months of Ramadan. So my family is Muslim. My dad took me to the local radio station, Radio Fazal Dawn or something. And I was about five years old because they wanted me to like do some Quran on the radio as a baby. And I, I actually found the recording of it and was like, this was my radio debut. Um, but that was the only time. I never thought about doing radio. And I auditioned. 186 people auditioned. It was like X Factor, four judges. They all had buzzers. You had to tell a 60-second story. And if you won, then you got your own evening program uh, five days a week, seven till 10, on BBC Radio Nottingham. And it went from 186 to 75 people, 75 people to 15, 15 to five. I remember when it got to five people, I was like, I don't even know if this is what I want to do. Like, (laughs) I wanted to act. What do I do if I actually win this thing? But another part of me was like, I think that this could be a thing. And it was a year's contract with the BBC. So it wasn't a permanent contract. It was just one year. And then, um, yeah, it went from three people and then they announced it live on the breakfast show. That I'd won it and I didn't expect to win it. And I brought my friends and family there and was like, I'm not going to win this thing. So you guys need to be here with me when we go for coffee afterwards and we just talk about it. So the shock on my face, like there's a video of it. I did not expect to win. And then they announced it on the breakfast show, So I had to do the job. Um, And that was uh, six years ago this year. That's how I got into the BBC. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Wow. So how did your... How did you, you talked about what your parents kind of almost, you know, they didn't want you to go into acting, but then what was the feeling, what was the feeling from your parents when it came to journalism then or working with the BBC?
1: Well, my parents are separated. Um, and when I was a kid, my mom, my mom was the one that used to always push the acting. And she used to watch Kate A. D. on the telly, you know, who she really respected and bought me, you know, Kate AD's autobiography when I was young and always Kind of, I think my mom always knew mother instinct. I'm not a mother, but apparently mother instinct is a thing. Um, She always knew that that was probably my calling in some way. So my mom was always really supportive um, and super proud and is always super proud of everything that I've done. Um, My dad raised me from the age of 12 onwards. So it was my dad that was around when I won the audition for Radio Nottingham and when I moved back home and said, I'm rejecting Deloitte and I want to act. Um, my dad is a doctor, so he has a conventional Asian acceptable job within the South Asian community. I know obviously the South Asian community is more open now, but there are some traditional roles that we are more, we just respect, you know, that's the reality of it. Um, and I think he was kind of like, well, she's got her degree now, so there's nothing that I can do about it. And also, I think he always knew that I have got that kind of personality where if I say I'm going to do something, I'm probably just going to go and do it. Um, but don't get me wrong. It was hard to have that conversation with my dad because I felt a lot of shame. And I spoke about this in my Ted talk. Um, and it was about this notion that we all have a gift that we can give to the world, but for whatever reason, maybe you don't feel like the thing that is your gift is the gift because of maybe you growing up in a community where for me, being a performer was just not as acceptable as being an academic. And so, so many people, especially from our communities or marginalized communities or diverse communities or whatever it is, feel like the thing that they're good at isn't good enough. So they go and do something else. And what a a shame that is for the whole world, you know, not just for themselves, but the world and for these people not to be able to thrive in the thing that they feel is their calling in their absolute heart, you know? And so um, on one side, I knew that this was my, my thing to give to the world, if you like. But on the other side, I felt a lot of shame about the fact that it wasn't necessarily something that was overly accepted. And I guess I then had to and then I guess I felt embarrassed about the fact that I was good at something that other people weren't good at. And it took my best friend to turn around and say, Samaya, Angelina Jolie does stuff with the UN. And I was like, OK, you can act and like maybe still try and do some impact stuff. Um, but making a difference in people's lives or just doing something positive, especially for those people that don't have a voice, there's always been something that I've done since the first day that I started at the BBC, you know, and Brown Girl Consum is that as well. So I think now I have found a way to make peace with it and realize that just because I'm not working in an operating studio, like or saving someone's life, there was um, surgery or something, it doesn't mean that what I am good at and what I have to offer is any lesser than... And respond. And doctors are also great, and they save people's lives, and we need them. I'm not. I'm not like you know going in for the doctors, um, but in terms of like my family's response, my dad now, I think he's been on TV more than me. Like literally, whenever there's a story to do with something that he's like, he was he was on TV about Brown can't, with Girl Can't Swim. He had a swimming lesson. He also got into the pool. He's on the podcast, as you know. You've heard, so we've come full circle with it. But it's not been easy, and it has required me to make the choice to bring my family with me on the journey rather than push against them, which has been hard. But Alhamdulillah, we would say in Urdu and um, in, in Arabic, even um, I, I think we're there. I think we've done it. <laughs>
0: good. no, good on you for it as well. Um, you mentioned a little bit about the shame for doing. We did. But did that, I mean, there's obviously quite a lot wrapped up in, in what you felt when you say shame. But was any of that perhaps because of the fact that you weren't seeing other people like you in the spheres that, you know, you know there was no, no one else to relate to? You couldn't say, well, that person's doing it. So, you know, it's it's OK for me to.
1: Totally. I spoke about this in my TED talk as well. Um, I was literally like there was no female Pakistani Muslim women on the TV doing what I wanted to do. I grew up watching Connie Huck on Blue Peter and it was so mad. I interviewed, I've interviewed Connie Huck a couple of times now. Can you imagine me fangling her? I did. I was like, hi Connie, I know I'm supposed to be super professional right now, but like, you have to know, you, I grew up watching you on the TV, like on Blue Peter. Like you are the only brown girl that was doing a thing, you know, and like you were super respected because she's crazy smart. I think she did economics. Um, I don't know if she went to Cambridge, but I think she did. Like, they, well, I know that she definitely did like PPE or economics or something like that. Um, but at the same time, like Connie also experienced well at least from within my community, people wouldn't necessarily be nice about Connie Hark because of the clothes that she would wear sometimes. And I'm just talking about her wearing a sleeveless top. But we know, like, Islamically, I, you know what? It's not even Islamically, and I'm learning this. It's it's not about Islam. It's about um, the experience of your culture and the way in which your faith is brought to you from a cultural perspective. So at least from some people in the Pakistani community, um she wasn't respected because she was wearing a sleeveless top it didn't matter that she was on blue to doing amazing things and so yes there there weren't many examples but i think what was more problematic was not only were there not many the ones that there were were also berated like of course there were people that were probably talking about how brilliant connie was and no doubt like and she is come on it's fact however as a child in answer to your questions in, in answer to your question, this was not what i heard i not only saw that there were wasn't much representation i saw that the representation that there was was like yeah she's not a good role model so what do you do and then you're also like but that's what i feel like i meant to do <laughs> it's super it's super difficult
0: yeah yeah fun. it is i bet you um and this kind of this kind of almost segues into something that you realized i think when you were doing the the podcast you said you mentioned i think it, you realized your two worlds kind of your Pakistani heritage and the British heritage kind of coming together and almost a bit of an identity clash or a crisis so like when did that first rear its head Uh, and then also then how did that then make you feel
1: I always knew it was going to happen because of my swimming costume um so the identity crisis stuff. Okay, for a start, the identity crisis stuff, you deal with your whole life. Do yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I didn't start the podcast and then I was like, oh, but I'm British and I'm Pakistani. No, Han it's happened since day dot. You know what I mean? And you just find ways to deal with it. You know, you like, you basically have a double life. I did a—I did a podcast with The Independent, with Mimshake, who's amazing. And he, he has a podcast with Independent Urdu. And we're talking about this very thing where it's like, whether it's, boyfriends or even just friends of the boys you know forget forget the relationship thing. let's not even go there that's a whole other thing you know like walking home from school and like being near a boy in the group of people and then being scared that auntie shazia is gonna see you like walking home you know what i mean and then you know auntie shazia is gonna tell your parents and that's it you're over that's it you know so whether it's whether it's friends whether it's god forbid boyfriends whether it's the clothes that i wear i did it today actually it's so funny i was um leaving the house to go and meet my friend obviously the airport I was at my dad's house I got changed and I know that my dad would much prefer if I wouldn't wear tights that were like 10 denier you know if they're like woolly woolly tights slightly different and I can feel myself putting on my long coat and like buttoning up my thing I'm 29 years old right I'm almost 30 buttoning my long coat up just because I was like oh I just don't want to have to deal with this group with the grief or the face do you know what I mean I just can't I just don't he wouldn't say anything now but he would he wouldn't like it, you know, and it's a part respect thing, um, but it was also just like the identity crisis stuff is is something that you deal with your whole life when you're dual heritage, you know. Um, and it's a blessing and a beautiful thing because we make beans on toast with like chili powder and onions and healthy and, and it's banging and it's better than beans from a can. Do you know what I mean? So it's not all bad. Like
0: I've seen those being sold uh, by Heinz now, like you've got dodka beans and like all sorts of flavored beans. It's like we were doing that, you know, for, for decades.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not being funny yet. I mean, clearly they see, they see Hind see it and if Heinz see it, like has to be Heinz, do you know what I mean? Like they know. Um... So I don't want to cuss it and say that there isn't positives. There is, you know, I love the fact that I'm Muslim, that I'm Pakistani, that I'm British. I love all of that, but it's complicated. And so the thing that gave me the most anxiety, even before I started, before I got into the pool, was what am I going to wear? Because I've worn a normal swimming costume. And when I say normal, I mean like your arms, your legs, your conventional swimming costume, in front of my friends, on holiday, on holiday boys and girls have been there you know uh, obviously i didn't go in the pool and like go in the sea even and try and swim and swim and nobody knew that but they've seen me in that um but then on the other side like when i was looking at what was available on the swimwear market it was a bikini uh alhamdulillah i managed to find something that was a bit in between that i felt good in but it was yeah the identity crisis thing was super hard because what what you wear is a representation of who you are now, if that's something you're doing in your private life, that's fine. I did Brangle Consum on TV, right? So it was gonna be very public. And I was torn between, do I wear a normal swimming costume because that's what I normally wear and I'm cool with that. I don't think I would want my legs and you know, all of that business out on TV to be fair. So I would have been happy covering my legs, but I don't mind if my armpits on the show. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm cool with that. Um, but for some communities and for some people, It's a massive difference between having a sleeve and not having a sleeve and i actually had this conversation with my dad and my brother in the masjid of all places and we argued about it because i guess my dad was sort of saying i don't want to you know i if you're saying that you're doing this for the muslim community then you have to look like you're part of the Muslim community. And in his experience as a Pakistani, that looked a particular way, you know, just because I wear something sleeveless doesn't mean that I'm not Muslim. But obviously, he was coming from his experience of being born and bred in Pakistan. And then I was sat there thinking, I don't want to conform to something that I'm not. So what do I do? Like, I don't want to conform and be inauthentic to who I am. But I, I also don't want to isolate a community. And then I was like, The most important thing is that you just try to reach as many people as possible, right? And take the faith out of it. There are people that feel body conscious. There are people that would feel like uncomfortable going to a pool, wearing a normal swimming costume because like, you know, when you go to the pool, you're basically wearing your underwear. Do you know what I mean? And Whether you're a man and you're, you know, like wearing boxes or whatever the hell it is and swimming shorts, you might not want to have your six pack out or your hairy chest or whatever it is going on, you you know? So I felt like the most... The, be- the right decision was for me to wear something more covered up. I didn't cover my hair. I didn't wear a bikini. I wore a swimsuit that I felt good in. When I did my final swim, I wore a wetsuit. So that was great because there were no questions there. I had to wear a wetsuit. But um, it was very, very hard, as you can hear. It was super hard. Um, and I had my mates challenge me and be like, dude, never seen you wear something like that before. And I was like, yeah, because it wasn't just about my dad and my family seeing the British side of me and hearing about that. It was also my British friends seeing that i was actually pakistani
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> it know? yeah that's, and that's another really interesting aspect of you know talking about your culture with people that aren't from your culture and like actually telling them no no there's all of this wonderful stuff the, or like other stuff or difficult stuff part of me as well you know yeah that's it's it. not just
1: a great tan you know <laughs> yeah.
0: <the> exactly <laughs> uh all of these all all, all of these aspects would have sound but sounds a bit kind of came up before you started the podcast before you even got into it right um uh so one um, one of the questions i did want to ask is what made you pursue this particular topic why 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 you know why the aspect of swimming
1: so um i was presenting the breakfast show on bbc radio leicester and it was ahead of the tokyo olympics and i was interviewing alice Deering. alice is the first female black swimmer to compete in an olympic games she's not far off my age and whilst she was um, kind of training, she was raising awareness around some of the challenges that the black community might face when swimming. So for example, the black community, their hair, if it and my, my best friends are both Jamaican, one of them was on the podcast, she also spoke about her hair and how not having a swim cap that's big enough to accommodate their hair can be a massive barrier to them learning to swim. And conversations around bone density and the black people can't slow and all the rest of it, you know, and trying to debust myths and stuff. And so Alice was doing a lot of stuff in the space to support the black community. And when I was interviewing her, I was like, wow, like I had no idea about this stuff, even though my two best friends since childhood are Jamaican, I felt like I should have known. And as I was listening to her, I was just thinking, I can't swim. Nobody knew that I couldn't swim. I kept it a secret, but I also, yeah, I was also thinking, what are the challenges that the South Asian community might face? And is anybody talking about it? And I knew what the challenges would be because I'm, because I'm part of the community, I knew that swimwear, as we just discussed, could potentially be, potentially be a barrier. Mixed changing rooms, you know, not having enough female-only swim classes, maybe not having male-only swim classes because it goes the other way as well. Having male lifeguards might make some women feel uncomfortable. Um, having swimming baths where you've got like glass all along the side so every man and his dog can see you. Things like this would definitely be considerations for our community, let alone the fact that, let's be honest, we don't necessarily always prioritize physical activity. We're smashing it at cricket. Well, you know, when it comes to swimming, hell no, it's not a thing, right? Um, And yes, we might learn in school. And I'm not saying that the South Asian community can't swim. I actually asked everybody that I knew that was brown and many of them could. But then I started to focus on specifically like the Muslim experience and the female experience um and i guess i just i realized that nobody knew that i couldn't swim but i just put it out on my instagram this was like before the pandemic and i got crazy amount of response i was like just doing a thing for the bbc wondering if there's anyone that can't swim and i didn't just have brown people get in touch they were you know the first guy that got in touch with me was a working class white lad from my old council estate and he was like i can't swim because i moved school loads Mm -hmm. I didn't get a chance really to learn in school and then basically I was way too poor to learn as an adult. Um, and he was one of the first people, he was the first person to learn to swim at, because of Brago Can't Swim. It was the completely opposite demographic to me. It wasn't a brown person. It was a working class white lad white lad from Nottingham and I was so proud of him and he's amazing and nicest guy in the world. Um, so yeah, I think when I realized how many adults couldn't swim and name the demographic I probably got someone in my DMs or my emails or my inbox that fits that demographic and can not swim. I felt like I gotta do something about this because I don't think we're talking about this. And I know how it feels to feel embarrassed about the fact that you don't have a skill it feels like kids have. But I also know that it's a life skill that can change, that can change your life, save your life, maybe help you save someone else's life if you're qualified, right? It's too important an issue for us not to talk about. So I need to get over my embarrassment and get out of my own way and also appreciate the fact that I have a platform at the time it was just BBC local radio, but it's a platform on the BBC to maybe raise this conversation and do something about it. That's what I started to do. And that's how Brown Can't Swim kind of happened. I guess with Becky and Adlington and stuff, I I realized that, okay, I wanted to set a challenge and I, I wanted Becky because she lives down the road from me in Manchester, in Mansfield. She's from Mansfield. And she's the only swimmer that i knew of and so i guess between becky and i and alice deering actually who's now my friend and a sweetheart um we sat together they set me the challenge of learning to swim in eight weeks um doing 500 meters in open water um and i guess on the way i investigated how much of an issue this was um and tried to do something about it because there was also no data there was nothing like no, there were statistics, but they were outdated and there was nothing that was tailored specifically to our community. Um, ethnic minority communities were kind of just like put in one or Asian would also incorporate East Asian, which is very different to South Asian. So uh, now after Brown Can't swim, swim, England commissioned the research specific to the South Asian community. And they found that across gender, nationality, religion, the the demographic that's least likely to be able to swim and face the highest number of barriers is female Pakistani Muslim women. Now we know that, but we didn't know before Brown Girl Can't Swim. So basically, my hypothesis was correct. Um, <laughs> but it's also great that we now have that data and we can do something about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think I, I did come across some stats, but I think those stats may have just been from the podcast. And like you say, they were yeah. somewhat outdated. And yeah. um, it was something like six, seven, nearly 7% of British Asian women swam in the previous year compared to like almost 20% of white British women yeah. who swam. Yeah. So that. that that discrepancy is huge uh yeah the stats but sounds a bit uh, uh lacking and it's actually something similar to like i, I love running um I, I run a lot and i came across uh statistics like they're very difficult to come across these statistics but um and they were just like park run uh demographics numbers uh, that i really had to delve into to find them but the, the, i mean i wouldn't be able to recite it off the top of my head but super super small numbers of south asians that run or actively run uh and like it, i kind of started looking into this when I, I interviewed um a runner a marathon runner uh indian and it's fascinating what you said about south asian community not prioritizing physical activity because i've got a bit of be in my bonnet about that as well um perhaps because i run a lot and kind of you know i think people should take their health a little bit more seriously uh because i'm like almost 40 and i'm seeing like all sorts of people around me now kind of come up with certain ailments here like you're 40 you're 45 like how like mm-hmm. people just don't look into their health enough, uh, I don't think mm-hmm. personally but anyway right. that's a that's a side topic and in, how easy then was it to get the um the podcast kind of okayed by the BBC or like the the kind of investigatory kind of aspect of things was it relatively straightforward pitch? Did they hear it and go yep cool kind of run with it
1: um so. I work. I was working in radio. That was my substantive role. Um, but I also um, had a very good relationship with BBC East Midlands Today, which is the regional telly. Um, and when I went to the radio station, they didn't say no. But the treatment that they wanted was different to the treatment that I wanted. Um, I wanted to sort of go back to because I was. I'm I'm from Nottingham. I was born and bred in Nottingham. And I moved to Leicester to present the, show, the breakfast show there. but my first gig was on Radio Nottingham. And so I wanted to tell the story chronologically from the beginning of my life, right? Which was not to make it about me, but obviously people are going to be like, why can't you swim? And i will be like, well, I was a kid and I grew up on this plate and that's the state. And this was the pool that I went to and stuff like that. And I wanted to go back to my old council pool. And that was really important for me because um, I had a lot of, I don't want to say trauma because trauma is a really loaded word, but. Anxiety, I had a lot of anxiety about that pool and like my feet not being able to touch the ground in that pool. So it was really important for me that the story started in Nottingham, but I think Leicester wanted a different treatment in my mind and they didn't say no. um, But I went to TV instead actually, and TV were like, yeah, okay, we will will do this. And they actually said, do you think your dad will get on board? And I was like, yeah, no problem. Um, So it was a conversation with a brilliant editor, the news editor at the time uh kevin hill who's no longer um at bbc as well and stay but anyway regardless um that was pretty straightforward but i think it was straightforward because i had done a lot of work i could go up to him and be like i have rebecca radlington by the way a four-time olympic medalist and i guess they were like okay fair enough she doesn't even work in tv Uh, i'm a producer as well as a presenter but she's put in the work to get rebecca radlington to produce this thing so there's a storyline there's jeopardy there so people know the challenge and all the rest of it um but also there's some serious journalism why not and at the time he commissioned in one film and I was like I mean I think it's going to be four but I was like I will let him just commission the one in the end it was four um because they realized there was just so many layers to the story um so with telly yeah they were brilliant and supportive and brilliant and amazing with radio it wasn't that I couldn't talk about it I spoke about it on the radio and everything um, but it was only actually formally commissioned as a podcast and I never set out for it to be a podcast ever I've set out for it to be a tv thing um it was commissioned as a podcast halfway through me learning to swim so we got new management at BBC Radio Leicester a woman called Kay Wright who actually gave me my first job in Nottingham she came to Leicester she said I'm gonna get you in a meeting with BBC Sounds um he, she was like it's an elevator pitch so don't do what I'm doing right now which is basically like speaking loads so she was like just Tell them the story that you've already started and you've got all of this, you know, your ducks in a row. And I did. And then, yeah, BBC Sounds commissioned it, which means that they gave me a producer, Ollie Peart. Who was brilliant. Um, and I had support from my news editor Radio Lester, Ian Brown. But up to that point, I was doing the whole thing by myself. Like, this wasn't... I, because when Radio Lester or the BBC, the BBC or whatever, it's not necessarily Boobstreet Radio lester but when I felt like they weren't going to run with it, I just wasn't willing to accept, no, because I knew in my heart there was something here. And I think part of the reason why, I mean, I approached a number of outlets at the BBC to make a documentary on it. And one of them said, we've just done one actually about swimming in the black community. And I was like, okay, that's really great. I'm not black and um, the story's different. So just because you've done like an ethnic story about swimming, doesn't mean that that ethnic story captures everybody's experience, even within the South Asian community. Just because of my experience, I, every interview I've done, have been very specific to say, I'm Pakistani, I'm Muslim, like I'm British. And therefore, like, I cannot speak to the Bangladeshi community or the Hindu community or the Sikh community. We have so much diversity within the South Asian community as well. Like, so I just, yeah, I guess they felt like we've always known a story about like, that so they didn't commission it and I just thought well you're wrong and I don't need the BBC or anybody to to tell me like what is a good important impactful story and good journalism I trust myself uh I'm just gonna do it and so I started swimming and I taught my swimming teacher how to record the podcast on a phone with a muff. um you know what a muff is I literally yeah. have three of them are right now and so she could basically do the commentary for the olympic games now like after having taught me vicky is a legend and she was a walking production because she was taking pictures of me um she was filming she was teaching me to swim and she was recording the audio um and then i had the meeting with bbc sounds and they said okay do you have all the audio because i didn't want to be in a position where they were like yeah okay and then they want this one particular thing like when you first got in the pool and i was like guys don't worry you're speaking to a producer i thought ahead. I have." everything the moments you want i've got them on tv and i've got i've got for tv and i've got them for audio and thankfully i did it um and that's how we managed to make the podcast
0: wow <laughs> you went through it sounds like you went through a lot <laughs> to get there um and yeah. the the block well the potential blocks that you came up against for me is very important because the idea of the fact that the bbc or whoever it will you know commissioners saying that we've already done an aspect covering we've already done something covering the the black community and it that's it's almost you know you hear it all the time you hear it with authors you know or you know filmmakers people trying to get a script commissioned for a short film a you know a feature film you know it's almost as if one story or one film covering I think the minorities that's it job done no that's the, the the differentiation between each community is is so different and you talked about layers right and kind of the reasons so the reasons for me as a british indian is going to be different to you as a british pakistani right so um it's yeah it's fascinating and then i often i've started to try and make sure i consciously use the phrase south asian communities um and it's something that i'd learn off of someone else but the idea that south asian community isn't just one right it's every one of those communities within it has their own lived experiences has their own way of life has their own food cuisine what way of thinking you know the way they live their lives it's so yeah it's you talk about the layers within there so that's actually kind of moves me on quite nicely to a question that I just wanted to ask is you obviously address it in the podcast but um talk to me about the most key pertinent discoveries that you came across in finding kind of in, in why you couldn't swim but also why the, the 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 Muslim community or Pakistan your your community struggles to get into into swimming
1: firstly the South Asian Community thing I love that so I'm with, nick it. And every time uh, I say it's
0: not, it's not my thing, like, it's someone else, like, but...
1: Thank you. Well, whatever whoever the thing is, thank you the other person, but you gave it to me as well, so thank you, I appreciate that. So if I say community again, you need to, like, stop me and be like, community slayer, but you're right, that's a super... It's a good way of thinking about it, actually, reframing it, and an important way to reframe it. Um. So basically, you're asking me what were the challenges, yeah? So I was trying to remember the question. Um. Okay, so... Mm-hmm. Speaking from the very specific experience, my experience uh, of a British Pakistani Muslim woman in her twenties, um, I think the first thing is that it wasn't really a priority. Um, my dad couldn't swim. He was born in Pakistan. So funny, this is so weird. When I was talking to my dad about it, turns out my babaji, my granddad, could swim, but he could swim because he had to swim across the lake to get to the village to go to school. What wow. Pakistan? I was like, wow, yeah. you swam to school. That's kind of bad. That's actually crackers. So my grand, but it just goes to show like how much priority we put in education. You swim to go to school. Anything else, you don't need to swim. You know what I mean? Doesn't matter This it's a life skill, but if you need to go to school and you need to get education, yes, no to swim. <laughs> I just thought it was crazy. Um, so, but my, my dad didn't have to swim across the village to go to school. So he didn't learn, um, in Pakistan, there isn't swimming pools like there are here in the UK where it's also part of the curriculum. And, you know, we have all of the provisions, the lifeguards, the availability, you know, the understanding, everything to learn to swim. So that's why he didn't learn when he came to this country, we were very poor actually. Um, and he had to work super, super hard. And I guess his priority was putting food on the table. It wasn't taking us swimming. Um, so that naturally kind of impacted us as kids. My mom was born here. She can swim. She took us for swimming lessons. I had swimming lessons as a kid. I didn't pick it up. You could say that I was the bad, the the girl in the class that just like wasn't very good at PA. Um, and I guess she also left those lessons feeling like I could swim because at the time the instructor said, if you can swim 25 meters, then your kid can swim. So apparently when I was like seven, I did 25 meters on my back. I don't, I, I I feel like I remember it, but this opens a whole kind of worms in terms of what qualifies you to say that you can swim. Is it you did one length when you were seven years old on your back, but you didn't leave knowing how to tread water, feeling like you could float, ever, ever swimming on your front. So if you can't, when you're in the sea, you're not gonna swim on your back again. Like, you know, you need to know how to float. You need to know how to tread water. That's the important thing. And I, I never learned that. So I guess my mom felt like I could swim. So she didn't continue taking us to lessons and also we couldn't afford it. Um, and then I had lessons in school, but like like I said, lessons in school are mixed between those that can and those that can't. And the, I was in the class that couldn't and in the class that couldn't, you've got a varying degree of ability as well. So despite the fact that I had lessons in school and then my mom tried to take me a few, a few extra for a number of reasons, I never left those lessons feeling like I could swim. And then I was just super embarrassed about it. So I I, I thought uh, on a few occasions in my life that I want to learn. But I was also really just nervous about like going to my local pool and like seeing someone that I knew and then being there with like my armbands on my noodles. Do you know what I mean? With no makeup on my face, like, <laughs> hi. No, not a vibe that I was going for. Especially like, yeah, not on my estate. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. embarrassment leads me quite nicely onto to the next point was I was embarrassed. I had shame about it. Uh, It felt like all the world around me could swim because I also didn't have a lot of brown friends growing up. So all my friends were either white or black or loads of different cultures, but there wasn't really anyone else. I was kind of in an echo chamber with myself thinking I was the only person. Only when I put it on social media did I realize that it was a massive thing and loads of people couldn't. So I guess a lack of understanding of how widespread the issue was, it not being a priority from my experience within the community, um, and we can see that with the statistics as well. Um, being embarrassed, clothing was definitely like a thing as I got older, just being like, uh, not necessarily because I cared, but if Auntie Shazia sees you in the pool in a normal swimming costume, do you know what I mean? I mean, Auntie Shazia ain't even going to be at the pool. It's likely she ain't going to even be there, but you're still thinking about her in the space that she doesn't exist, aren't you? That's just the thing. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely say they were the, the main the main reasons as to why, why I didn't pick it up and why I didn't learn. And, you know, there's there are reasons that are maybe more specific to the South Asian community, like, but the things that I touched upon previously as well, like a male lifeguard or pools with big glass or mix changing room settings, free mixing, all of that kind of stuff. The thing that I found really ironic and kind of mad about swimming over brown or can't swim was in Islam, it's a sunnah. So a sunnah is like, you get brownie points from God. It's good vibes, Yeah something you're encouraged to do good deed it's a sunnah to swim and there's four sports that you are encouraged to do um if you can you that are are a sunnah wrestling archery horse riding and swimming because they're all seen in some cases as like life-saving or could be helpful to you in some way right um and i just found it really mad that like so many pakistanis who often tend to be muslim they didn't have this skill despite it being a sunnah. More specifically, it's a mustahab, which is, like, a particular type of sunnah. I'm just making sure I'm getting it right. For anyone Muslim listening and being like, it's a mustahab, not a sunnah. Anyway, spoke to a scholar about it. And I was like, wow. If the Muslim community knew that this was a sunnah, like, they'd be cues coming out of the swimming, like, the, the swimming pools. Do you know what I mean? They'd be running to the pools to, like, learn to swim. I would hope. And the thing is, I know that they want to. When I, whoever I spoke to, they were like, I want to swim, but... I don't know how my husband's going to feel about it or my dad's going to feel about it or is there a swimming costume? And I think the role of men is super important as well. And I think that can be a big barrier for some women, especially um, is that in some more conservative families, there might be the perception that you are just walking around with no clothes on in a mixed setting and what is the need for the for this little rikiae? Like, you know, they don't necessarily see physical activity as we've spoken about important, Going for a run is a problem for some women, let alone going to a swimming pool where you're going to be like nungi, you know, like not going to have any clothes on or whatever. So um, that's why I brought my dad into the story because to support those women and those families especially, it's important that we have a a male role model who is in, in the community, community leader, Dr. Saab, 60s, and he's learning to swim, supporting his daughter, but also maybe resonating to the men in the narrative as well to get them to learn too. So... There's a few barriers.
0: It, it is. It really does make you think. And what I'm trying to also not do is take away from your experience and kind of your reasoning. And it'd be easy to kind of wrap up everything into this again South Asian community box and say, you know, it's it's the the financing of it. uh You know, the immigrant community not being able to afford it when they first came over, and therefore not give lessons to their kids, and etc. etc. But I think it's a lot deeper than that, and a lot more specific especially based on the individual, the household, perhaps, you know, and you know, the, the kind like
1: of, that yeah, amount.
0: yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, and so like, and yeah, it's, um, I think the clothing thing is quite uh, quite an interesting one because I know cricket also has this problem, especially when it comes to, uh, women's cricket. Uh, and I think there has been a bit of a, a motion, uh, in cricket to provide a bit you know, more modest clothing for, um, female cricket players, um, is there like, is is that going to, do you think, is that hopefully going to move the community on towards, uh, you know, being more comfortable with going swimming, if whether they can or can't swim or, or learning, or do you think there's a lot more to it? Do you think it's a bigger problem than just the modest, the, the modest clothing?
1: I mean, I think clothing is a thing for sure. Um, and actually after Brown Girl Can't Swim, I had a number of swimwear brands, the biggest swimwear brands in the world wanting to talk to me and work out what they could do. And that's brilliant. Um, so in terms of the commercial side, can we make something happen? Yes. It's already happening. Nike for Ages have had like bikinis, Speedo, do modest swimwear, whether it's modest swimwear you like is a different subject. Right. But that's important, you know, cause you've also got to like it, but I don't think the answer is you just provide some modest swimming, like you just provide modest swimwear. It's not. Also because if we think about it from the other side, given the cost of living and especially after COVID pools are closing regularly, you know, I think the the BBC did some research where you could literally put your postcode in and see how many pools had closed in your area. It was a a journalist, a colleague of mine that did the research um, since like over the last few years, which is just crazy. Like, so I think the thing is, is that yes, we could increase awareness about modest swimwear, that's fine. Does it tackle the issue of female-only swim classes or male-only swim classes? No, that's still a challenge. There still has to be a middle ground, though, because the poor providers and the leisure centers want you to use the facilities. They don't want to be closing down. They want to take your money, you know. They want to support you. They appreciate that they are there and they are important because later on, it eases also pressure on the NHS or ailments or health issues a little bit further down the line, right? So everybody agrees that physical activity is important, fine, but the challenge that we have is okay you give people modest swim, swimming the swimwear fine is there the availability of classes at a time which is not like wednesday afternoon at one o'clock do you know what i mean um often evening classes might be taken up by kids swimming sessions or open swim sessions where you don't have lanes and all the rest of it affordability is definitely another thing um, mixed sessions I spoke about The other things that I spoke about in terms of barriers Are still definitely there I think it's not necessarily on poor providers Or the council To meet all of the needs of the community The community also needs to Kind of come in middle way If you know what I mean Because the poor providers could be like Okay we'll put on female sessions Or all of these times and all the rest of it But the reality is they have done that in the past And they've struggled With people from the community coming forward And actually taking them up so it's not just the case of, and they're, they're struggling with their costs. So pools are closing down and they're thinking, well, we need to stay open. Where do we have the demand? We always have the demand with kids swimming lessons, that there's always a waiting list. So I, I understand why they may prioritize that if adults aren't coming forward saying that this is something that they need, you know? So it's really multifaceted, which is why it's so frustrating. I wish that I could say like, yeah, get swimwear, be sorted, get more availability of pools, it'd be sorted. There are innovative ways in which these tackle these issues are being tackled like pop-up pools where you can literally open a pool in a car park i'm in a car park right now and there are companies that go around the country and have pop-up pools so they can go to the school and um, you know and then kids don't have to worry about getting on a bus and having the transport transport is also a massive thing you wouldn't think it but it really is like if people don't drive like and they they're not in a place where there is a local pool or a pool that's close to them they're just not gonna go so there's loads of of, there's loads of different things um not one thing is going to solve this problem I think the biggest thing I would say is for our community to make physical activity a priority and to realize the importance of that whether that is swimming or whether that's any other sport you know just so happens that swimming is probably one of the only sports or if not the only sport that could save your life however you know obviously I'm gonna like love enough swimming running's also great you know not as good for your knees but also great just do something so I think reframing it and making it a priority not just like play would probably be one of the most impactful things and also ensuring that you have people that are operating on a grassroots level to be able to tap into those communities the people that can ask access the masjids the temples the and change the perspectives and minds of the people of the aunties the uncles and the young people that are there you know because that's where it needs to happen you and i know that physical activity is important we don't need to be told that right what we're trying to tap in is into the community Communities where that is perhaps not the perspective that it's not a priority, and where are those people going to be? You know, is it community centers? Is it WhatsApp groups? Like, you know, trust me, we definitely have a WhatsApp group going on for our community. You get into that, everyone's going to know about it. So, I think it's it's also about working on a grassroots level to change the perception and ensure that it is seen as a priority, whether that's swimming or any other sport. I think that would make the biggest difference. And then you can go. Then Speedo will give you the swimwear. They will dogs will do it the councils will give you the pools if they get in if people are like using their feet to go there and be present you know i think there's so much we could do in this space because our community is also so big you know it's a shame but we just need people to drive it
0: yeah it's complicated it's multifaceted um and towards you went on so we get to kind of the jeopardy in the 500 meters open water swim and you know you you've done it uh, and at the end of, we get to the end of the podcast and you know after all of those trials and tribulations and you know the conversations with your family and it seemed like you got a lot of support and admiration from from your family in particular like your dad and your brother and so you know who perhaps at first they weren't fully on board um so how did that kind of when you came to the end of it and you've got to the end of the kind of the series and the podcast and you can swim you know uh you're swimming in open water how did all of that the support and admiration from your family how did all of that make you feel at the end of it
1: it makes me emotional you even telling me it and reminding me of it so thank you for reminding me of it because i think we forget right um i felt i don't know it changed my life brown will can't swim like it completely changed my life not only professionally forget the awards whatever it it changed my life personally because i had to have really difficult conversation with my family and break that barrier between like my double life, right? Or break that that barrier and try and show that what I'm actually doing is meaningful and important. And for my family to sort of... My brother always knew that it was important. I think he was just nervous about how I was going to... What I was going to wear. And my dad took a bit of persuading and then, you know, now he's Mr. Brown bloke can swim 101, you know? So um, it was super intense, super emotionally testing that was the biggest thing that was hard about the challenge it wasn't the swimming it wasn't the learning to swim it was all of the emotional stuff coming from the people that you love the fear of me also putting their voices out there for the whole world to criticize you know I love my family my dad and my brother and my niece are the most important people in my whole life so that was terrifying and so for it to be validated as a good thing and for it to be received in the way that it was whether that was from strangers or the British Sports Journalism Awards or the Asian Media Awards or the City of Nottingham, we won three awards. Bramble can't swim and the hard campaign has three awards, which is absolutely ridiculous and just crazy. But most importantly, with my family, um, yeah, it's we have a completely different relationship. It makes me emotional to think about it. And I'm just very grateful. Super, super grateful. Sometimes you need to have an argument to come through the other side of it. We literally had a right bus stop and I came out of the lake a new woman. <laughs> <laughs> Or
0: well, you swam. You swam to the other end, and uh, you got out, and everything's all all yeah. changed. Um, I mean, I don't. This doesn't mean much coming from me, but like, well done for doing that. Do you know what I mean? Because and and well done for kind of going through uh, that challenge and knowing that 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 task and that that piece of journalism was going to involve your family and put your family on that kind of, you know, in the open public sphere. Which, like, you. I think. I mean, you alluded to it earlier. Not a lot of people would be like comfortable doing that uh i know i wouldn't be depending on what the topic was or whatever so like that is that is huge and sometimes it takes that it, it take it takes jumping over that, that that kind of that hurdle to and and come out on the other end to you know to make something amazing and obviously it's you know the proof is in the pudding with with the awards that you won and and did you did you get presented was it ebony rain from brent that presented yeah. you, you yeah. i think i saw a, saw a video of that and i was like i'm a huge fan of hers as well so that must have been quite um and obviously you you work in in kind of cricket in the 100 and stuff that must have been quite cool yeah like you say aside from the awards it you know there's so much more to it and there's so much more that you know it needs to be highlighted and kind of made brought to brought to the forefront and and for people to be made aware of so amazing amazing stuff thank you thank you for doing it A massive thank you to Sameer Mughal for that conversation with me and for her time. As a reminder, you can listen to Brown Girl Can't Swim on BBC Sounds now. Just do a search in the BBC Sounds app and you can download all episodes. Please make sure you are following London Writing Guy on Instagram and or subscribed to the London Writing Guy podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, thank you for listening.